Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. When you wake up one morning in hospital with no memory of how you got there, it makes you stop and think. This rock-bottom moment led my guest in the studio today to transform her life, and in the process, she's transforming the lives of countless others. Shanna Wan is a country girl from northwestern New South Wales, and when her hospitalisation forced her to acknowledge that her drinking was out of control, she discovered that getting sober in the country was no easy feat. This conversation with Shanna is as raw and honest as they come. We talk about sexual assault and suicide, so if that's difficult for you, maybe now's a good time to turn off. But ultimately, this is a hopeful conversation with a survivor whose strength and generosity of spirit is genuinely inspiring. Shanna Wan, welcome to Ideas at the House. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, you grew up on a farm. What sort of childhood was that? Oh my gosh, it was such a beautiful childhood. So, you know, I was a very much a feral, <laughs> free range bush kid. I grew up fanging around the paddocks bareback on my horses, rescuing critters. My beautiful mum, I don't know how she did it, but she just gave us full reign to be explorers and do our thing. And oh man, it was a beautiful childhood. So who were you playing with? Myself and my horses and my dogs and my chooks <laughs> and whatever I'd rescued. Yeah. So we were isolated, very isolated. Um, I did have an older brother, but yeah, uh, my friends were my animals, honestly. Did you have a good relationship with your parents? I, I had an amazing relationship with mum in particular. Dad, I idolised my dad, like still do actually, but he was he was very, 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 very committed with work and he was really absent most of the time because of his work commitments. And my father grew up in extreme poverty and he didn't want that for us. So he dedicated his entire life to provision for us. It's this huge irony for men of his generation, I think, yeah. that worked so hard to look after their families yep. and as a result of that hardly ever got to see their families. Isn't it the most tragic irony? And I can tell you right now for a fact that Dad, when he looks back on his life, it's one of his greatest regrets. And I've sat with him and said, Dad, do not regret it. You were doing the very, very best thing you knew to do with what you had. Um but it's a complicated discussion because really I just wanted my dad. Mm. I did. Um, uh, you know, and as a consequence of being an isolated kid, we went off to boarding school first, you know. I think I was 11 when I went to boarding school. So to be um, taken away from your paddock and your horses and your dogs and your cats and your chooks and your rescue animals and your mum and your home, oh, I guess it is a privileged thing to have an amazing education, but damn, it comes at a cost to some of us. And I'm one of those kids. I I, I did seven years of boarding school. My life was boarding school as a kid and I, I bloody hated it. <laughs> you said once that going to boarding school, you felt like your wings had been clipped. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, I think for me, as a, as a little feral bush kid with zero social bloody awareness, I had no idea. <laughs> Plucked out of obscurity in the wilderness and plonked into this all-girls environment, I was, I was completely out of my depth. I had no social skills, no social awareness. I was um, on the receiving end of a few bullies. But mostly I just felt this gaping, enormous hole open up in my heart. I just did not fit. 
What were the other girls like? Like girls have always been, I guess, when, when they, they get into groups and do their thing and, you know, um, I found girls in large groups overwhelming and intimidating and it scared the living daylights out of me. I just, I didn't know how to cope. You know, it's, you know what's so super weird is I see kids who were below my grade at this particular boarding school and they will say to me, oh, my God, I remember you as confident, bubbly, popular, uh, amazing, and you were intimidating. And I'm like, what? I cannot for one nanosecond wrap my head around that. In my heart, I was, I, I felt unpopular. I felt intimidated. I felt like I was on the outer constantly. So what that shows to me is that back then I'd already kicked into that survival instinct of fit in or die, mm. I guess. And I have this really distinct memory of um, standing on the edge of um, the field at an athletics day. All the families were there. All, lots and lots of mums and dads were there. And as usual, mine couldn't be there because dad was too busy and uh, mum had a lot of social anxiety. So quite frequently I was by myself. Um, and I remember standing on the edge of the paddock watching mums and dads and families encircle and embrace their loved one and, you know, patting them on the back and encouraging them. That's when I reckon this is where the hole in my soul first became like a physical acute pain that I, I couldn't even understand it. I couldn't process it. And I just remember that's when that first feeling of just being removed from everything and everyone kicked in. And I now understand all these billions of years later. <laughs> um, that was really the platform for what would lead me into destructive behaviour and trying to drown that feeling. Do you remember the first time you had a drink? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, it was a cutout harvest party in a shed. Um, and it was the first time I'd been so sorry for those listening in, in the city who may not know what the hell that means. It just means the crops are off. Let's get on the booze and celebrate. Poor mum and dad, they'd reluctantly said, all right, you can go, but behave yourself. And I promptly went and did anything but. How old were you? I think I was, um, 17, home for holidays and, um, someone was sculling beers and then, I decided I wanted to be part of whatever that cool club was, so I sculled my first beer and discovered I have an ability to scull a beer. Could you believe that? Anyway, I think I sculled two or three schooners, promptly was paralytic, and awkwardly these people at the party had to ring mum and say, oh, you better come get your child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my first experience. How did your parents react? Um, <laughs> mum was... Um, there the next morning and she just saw the state of me and how desperately sick I was and she just took pity and kind of laughed it off. She said, well, I guess that's your lesson learned, my darling child. Um, yeah, and I think back to that moment actually and I sometimes think, God, I wonder what would have happened if they'd grounded me and <laughs> been heaps more serious and tough about it or did they do the best thing? I, I don't even know. But um, Were yeah. your parents drinkers? Dad was when he was younger. Uh, Mum never. Um, but yeah, drinking was, was just a big part of the culture. End of story. Everyone drank. Um, and you were, you were, you were a bit of a bloody mm, outcast, I guess, if you didn't. So the second I had awareness, I knew alcohol was what you did. Mm. End of story, especially in the bush. Mm. It was there from the get go. So you finished school and you weren't in any particular hurry to get to uni after that. No, in fact, um, despite advice given by family and friends, i 
dug my heels in and said, there is no way you're going to get me to go from one institution into another. I'm going off to explore the world and good luck stopping me. And I guess that was where the first um, hint of rebellious me emerged. Uh, And I took a gap year. And um, I I went to various rural uh, properties. I really just wanted to pursue my love of horses, working with stock. Um, And sadly, the common theme was was also alcohol and um, abuse. Hmm. So while you were working at these places, you know, you were a young woman, a teenager still, and drinking because everybody was. Did you enjoy a drink at that point? I don't even reckon I could bloody recount whether I did or didn't. I just did it because it's what you did. But yeah, I I don't think I've ever loved it. I don't think I ever drank for the taste, put it that way. Mm. It was never about the taste of a cold beer. It was about the effect. It was about the effect. Originally, I think I liked that it made me feel like I fit and belonged. It's a point of identity with bush kids. Always has been, still is. And as a socially awkward, anxious person who was from another bloody country and had no social awareness and hadn't grown up in the landed gentry of, you know, sheep stations and, you know, had connections going back 15 billion years like all the other kids. I always felt like an outcast anyway. So beer made me feel like I was part of the pack. So I liked that about it. Yeah. The other thing that happened on this gap year was that you were assaulted and Mm. and raped. is it hard to separate alcohol with those events? No, it was integral, really. It was a part of it. Um, so losing my virginity to date rape was a it's, – it's such a cliche, it's actually ridiculous. It was someone I cared about, someone I had a crush on, someone I admired, someone I worked with, and, um, yeah, beers were involved. Um, flirting was happening and – the end result of that was me going, okay, that's enough now. Um, but 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 the other partner, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> the other person involved decided it wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah, the, yep. Um, and um, as is a story as old as old as old as time, I figured, well, I put myself in this stupid situation. I'm an idiot, therefore I deserve it. Who am I to whinge now? So it was pretty awkward actually because um, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. And um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I had no vehicle. There was no internet. And I had to wait until the share house that I lived in was um, vacant of humans and I rang a bloody helpline <laughs> from the landline because I was concerned, what if I, what if I become pregnant, <laughs> you know? And so thank God the person on the helpline said to me, well, you, you need to probably go and see a doctor and get the morning after pill. And I'm like, how, how do I do that? I'm in the middle of bloody nowhere and I had to ring someone who knew someone who knew someone and get someone to drive out to the property. Oh, my God, it was just humiliating. And at the same time dealing with the trauma of what had just happened to you. Yeah, and then having to explain to these people on this station why someone's dropping off a Oh, God. Anyway, it's just humiliation upon humiliation. Oh, anyway, so being being the product of our environment, which is to be stoic, be tough, get get up, go to work, keep going, I did that, I think, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And worked with this bloke. Yeah, who acted like nothing had happened. And the property that I was on at the time had some people coming and going who are what you call share farmers, meaning they just come and do... Um, odd bits and pieces um, to on that property and, again, alcohol was involved and some of those 
characters came back to that property full as boots and um, one of them decided to detour via my bedroom and visit me and assault number two and it was actually another family member from that same family and then um, there was a bit of predatory behaviour from that same individual. I don't know. You, you just don't think because, again, you know, these days you have you have Facebook and social media to say, girls, if you are being spoken to like X, Y, Z or ABC, that is not okay. That is abuse, whatever. You know, there's so much amazing education and awareness out there now. Back then we, we were limited to um, only knowing what we were told by the people around us. So when you've grown up really isolated, you just don't know. You do not. Like in your gut and in your visceral gut level instinct, you know what's happening isn't right, but you don't know what the hell to say or do because you're like, oh, shit, I'm employed here. Um, these people are in charge. I can't speak up. I can't say anything. I can't do anything and I deserved it. Um, and everyone around me is carrying on like it's normal. Everyone around me, no one is stepping up. So, oh, my God, it's just it's such a mess. I don't know, like people like me, and, I mean, my story is not uncommon. Oh, my God, it's just it's as common as can be to this day. But, yeah, like I said, thankfully not long after that, I, I just melted down completely. I, I called the big boss over one day and I what I went what I meant to say was I need to leave. But I opened my mouth to speak and I just started hyperventilating and then I just I just started sobbing uncontrollably. I completely fell apart. Like I was I was, you know, blotchy face, shaking, trembling. Please call my mum and dad. Did your mum and dad look after you? Yeah, yeah. They came and got me straight away. They did. They knew I was I needed to go, but it's really weird. My memory goes a bit fuzzy here. Um, I don't think I ever gave them the full-blown outline of what had happened because of the shame, once again, because I was drinking and I was behaving stupidly. Um, and I think also instinctively I knew that if I gave the full rundown of it to my father, bad things would come of that and I wanted to protect Dad. So I think I kind of just went home. I think I licked my wounds for, I don't know, I can't even remember now. It's all a bloody, it's honestly all a blur. Um, but I packed up and went off to another job and um, <laughs> oh, basically same thing happened three additional times within that year. Men, alcohol, me trying to fit in, me trying to belong, me behaving. Um, it's when the persona of wild, crazy Shanna emerged, which was really terrified, insecure Shanna, drinking to try and fit in and feel courage and 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 um, men taking advantage again and again and again. And I think by the end of that first gap year, I think it had been six sexual assaults. And you'd think, wouldn't you, you would think, well, Shanna, why did you get yourself into situations where you were drinking? Why would you do that? And isn't it funny how the two go hand in hand? It's like fearful, insecure, on the edge, alcohol equals courage. But I was one of those drinkers from the get-go who didn't have an off button. I think I was a natural-born alcoholic. Um, it doesn't matter how drunk you are. You don't deserve to be assaulted. No, 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 no totally. But what I'm saying is... You internalise that. You internalise that. And some people listening may think, well, why the hell did you put yourself in that precarious position? And part of the reason I advocate so fiercely today is to say, girls, you've got to be aware that there is a really strong connection between alcohol addiction and trauma. And I'm a walking, talking case study of all of the above. 
Mm. So it was a tough year. <laughs> Sounds mm. like an awful year. Did you ever get any counselling? Nope, not once. So uh, I went off to university after that gap year. And, of course, the first thing we did back in the dark ages at uni was have O-Week, which means get as shit-faced as possible for seven days without dying, if you can. And guess who won the best on ground and was awarded fresher of the year for that behaviour? Mm. Me. I took to that like a duck to water. I was like, yes, I have found my tribe. Um, and by then, party girl slash wounded, damaged, <laughs> um, post-traumatic bloody stress girl, that's when that persona really, really let loose. It's like a um, it's like a character that you can adopt for self-protection. It's like armour almost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because back then when I drank and after a certain point, which is usually two or three drinks, the person who emerged wasn't really true to me. I sort of went through phases. Um, there were phases where I might be a bit bitchy or I might be a really, 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 really promiscuous, which is also very, very common for victims of rape and assault. And and you'd sort of wake up the next morning and think, how the actual hell did I even get from the city back to this room? I don't know. I do not know. Uh, We wore it as a badge of honour back then in uni to compare who got so pissed they couldn't remember how they got home. That was hilarious. You know, isn't that just insane? So what were your personal relationships like at this point? You you have spoken publicly before about having had a, an abusive relationship at this yeah. point. Was that a long-term thing? Yeah, I spent six years in a relationship with a much, much older person um, who I now, only now, can look back and realise was a product of their own abusive childhood. Uh, he was um, very charming, um, very manipulative, very clever, skilled, talented blah, blah, blah. And again, it's actually, it's, it's funny, you know, um, with the, with the invention of the internet, you know, I'd be reading things later on in life, much later on about how emotional abuse works, where you are separated from people, where you are systematically eliminated from this situation, that situation, increasingly controlled, increasingly made to feel worthless, um, which I already did, believe you me. So this, this person got a hold of me when I was already feeling like the biggest waste of space in the continent. It's probably one of the reasons that he found you. Yeah, yeah. How'd you get out? Um, ironically, he and another fellow and myself were meant to go away for a three-week um, sabbatical to do something that was I was very, very passionate about. Uh, and at the last minute um, I was informed that, oh, no, um, we're going early and, oh, whoopsie, you can't come either, which I now understand was planned from the get-go. And in that month, enough things happened for me to finally look from the outside in and I, I remember sitting back at the house I shared with that fellow at the time going, oh, I'm, I, am, I am trapped. I'm literally a captive in this thing. And I was given, I don't know, things just made sense and, um, and I just left. So you packed up. And I packed up. Where did you go? Um, I went to the city and worked for a couple of years in Brisbane actually. I went to Bris Vegas as we call it, us bushies. <laughs> um, and so began... Um, the next chapter, so I bolted and I started again. It was during that time that you met your now husband as well, right? More or less, yeah. I was I was thirty. I was down in uh, I was living in southern New South Wales at the time, still working corporate ag. Uh, he worked for the same company in a different location. He was my mate. He was just wanny. So he was based back in Narrabri, and I was out in central western Queensland. And when those uh, companies had conferences, we would all get together and have beers. <laughs> um, what did you like about him? 
Oh, Tim was always just been a beautiful, really nice bloke, but I wasn't interested in him at all and vice versa. Isn't it funny? I was too busy pursuing assholes because that was another byproduct of being abused. I had no interest in nice men back then or so I thought. Yeah. So what was the turning point? Well, I think from um, I think from Timmy and I first being mates to me recognising it, there was about a seven-year gap. Seven years. Yeah, mm. and many, many, many mistakes and broken hearts and disaster. Um, Tim had in the meantime been up in the Northern Territory because he's a hardcore Australian bush lover and he'd been tour guiding in the top end. Um, and I used to love getting his emails about his adventures and I replied one day and said, Wani, do you reckon I'd be all right as a tour guide? And he goes, yeah, you'd be awesome. And I now know that's what Tim would say to anyone no matter what. He's just very generous. <laughs> and I went, really, how do you do this? And long story short, I threw everything in and decided I'm going to have a crack at tour guiding. So... He had said to me, I'll be going back up to Alice Springs um, in November. If you want to, I'd happily, you know, keep company on the trip. So I packed everything up, took my old ute and went to Narrabri to pick up Tim One. And the turning point was, I remember driving up to Tim's mum and dad's place and he came down the stairs that day and he gave me his big full toothed grin. And I suddenly, I suddenly went, you dickhead. (laughs) <laughs> How'd you miss this one? I honestly, in my head, that's what I said to myself. I was like, oh my God. And it was like a little cheesy bolt of lightning struck me. And I was like, oh, DZ, we go again. Cause I know what it's like when I get a crush. <laughs> I'm quite determined. Anyway, and I instantly realized I'd missed the best bloke of them all. So how did you let him know? <laughs> well, I got pissed <laughs> and, pa- and passed him, Edwina, as you do, and didn't remember it, as you do, and then regretted it, as you do. So I gave him full access to my most out-of-control self. And we then awkwardly had to get in a ute and drive to the Territory together and all everything was extremely awkward because now it's like, oh, God, what happens next? So, so developed a very, very, very dysfunctional kind of off again, on again, booty calling relationship with Tim and I. Mm. And the reason it was so awkward for Tim is he instinctively knew I was not okay from that very get-go point. He knew that me and alcohol was trouble and he knew that I wasn't okay. And um, as I would say to anybody, you don't probably want to go to the middle of Australia to be a tour guide when you're a budding alcoholic. (laughs) So as you can imagine, being a tour guide, on the booze, on the party bus. We were taking backpackers on three-and-a-half-day camping trips. And they're not known for their sobriety, are they? No. So really things, drinking, whoa, man, it just escalated because there was no guiding um, principles. Mm. So when, But when you and Tim decided to leave, mm. you decided to leave together? We did. After many very – so I guess what I would say is Tim went back west um, – but he came back and said, come on then, Shan, let's go back together. He, he just, he was trying so hard to push me away, but he couldn't because he's a nice bloke and he did love me despite all my hideous um, mess and chaos that came with me. And that kind of pursued us till our marriage and beyond, to be really honest with you. So that pattern repeated through our lives as as, as a couple returning to the Northwest, as a, as a couple who um, returned back to grown-up life and work and whatnot. Yeah, until I gave up alcohol, it got worse. How did you get engaged? There's a oh man, it's such a it's such a long, convoluted story. But basically, what ultimately led to Tim committing to me was me giving him his rope and saying, "Mate, 
you're an awesome guy and you know there's nothing I want more than to marry you, but I'm just going to give you your freedom. But my biological clock and everything else is going kaboom and I'm going to give you a time frame upon which to make this decision because if it ain't going to be me, I need to start again. But because I gave the guy some space and time and room to think. And there was a deadline. (laughs) Well, yeah. Anyway, he came back to me the next day and said, how's April sound, sweetheart? (laughs) And I went, what? (laughs) Um, So um, you're... Biological clock was in full drive, but yeah. but when you and Tim tried to start a family, it wasn't to be. No, um, never given a reason. Did testing, did all sorts of wonderful things, but now I can sit back and I I am confident the reason we couldn't conceive is because of my health. Having now studied and graduated in holistic health and all sorts of fancy wonderful things, I understand now the greatest inhibitors to falling pregnant at grog and cigarettes and stress and coffee. And I was in a really high stress, high pressure job. I was a traveling journalist, working myself to death under deadlines, pressure and a high functioning alcoholic. So my drinking in the whole background of the last decade of this bit had just progressed and progressed and progressed. Um, I didn't drink during the day and I didn't drink every day, but when I drank, it was on for young and old and I wasn't going to do less than blackout, you know? There's no, there's, well, I shouldn't say there's no uterus that wants to conceive in that environment because lots of uteruses do, but mine didn't. Mm. Was that the final straw for you and your alcoholism? Yep, it was. It was. And there's, I guess, the realisation that I had cost myself our chance to be parents crushed me completely because I knew it had come down to my alcoholism. Um, Yeah. As as um as Tim said, it was the perfect excuse to really get on it, <laughs> and so the descent really began in earnest. Then, so really. what, you just kind of gave up? Yeah, I reckon in a way I did. I um, so we were trying intrauterine insemination. It's like when you bloody um do AI for cows. <laughs> there's not much dignity involved, just quietly. We had a crack at that. We did this. We did that. Um. And I'd sort of go through these periods of really, really trying my hardest to be healthy and get on the straight and narrow. Then we'd have a failure and I'd go bang, fall off my wagon. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And eventually we gave up on spending a fortune because it was clear that I couldn't keep it together and maintain health. And then um, my alcoholism uh, was so severe that it was now impacting work, relationships. I was increasingly unreliable lying, manipulating, hiding how much I drank, all of the all of the classic um, symptoms and behaviours of alcoholism. Yeah, so in early February 2015, it was after another fertility failure and I'd been white-knuckling it through Christmas and watching everyone with their children and newborns and I was so full of self-pity, so full of self-hate. I basically remember going home from... Uh, a, a function at Tim's family farm where everyone was there with all their perfect families and going, yep. I just got up and walked out of there like a zombie, drove back into town 40 minutes, drove by the bottle shop, did the old three-for-one dirty, cheap Chardonnay special. Ugh, the thought of it gives me the shivers, hey. Um, and I don't know what happened, but Tim came home and found me um, in a in a jumble of limbs and blood at the bottom of the stairs and I was suicidal at that stage. So um, I think where where I was going was I'm not quite co- courageous enough to kill myself, but maybe if I get really pissed. This is the slow route. Maybe this is the way I can do it. Isn't that just terrible? 
And there's so many stories in the bush of people who suicide eventually after drinking enough and having a shotgun handy or whatever's going on or, yeah, so that was our rock bottom. Um, was coming to in the emergency room um, to, to, you know, unfamiliar sights and sounds and smells and, and woke up to find drips coming out of my arm and, and my husband standing there um, just standing next to the bed, um, yeah, just looking at me. He was so broken. Mm. It was pretty awful. Um, and what really broke my heart was that the nurse we had um, it was so compassionate. I was waiting for judgment. Um, I was waiting for how could you? Um, and there was just so much compassion. Um, and I remember when I finally got out of hospital, um, we went back home and I had this great big set of stitches across my face. Um, and I remember Timbo came in and sat on the bed and I was waiting for it. I was waiting for him to say, why, how can you, don't you love me enough? Which is what all people who love alcoholics say. And it just doesn't count, unfortunately, at that point, which I now know. It's not about loving someone enough. It's about the fact that you're a bloody addict on a one-way ticket to death. Um, and I remember him reaching over and he just sort of stroked my hair and tucked a strand of hair behind my ear and he just had tears rolling down his face and he just said, um, he said, you can't help it, can you? You can't do anything about this. And um, that just, his grace in that moment um, was what really gave me enough courage and, and I just had enough of that little mongrel dog left in me to pick up the phone one last time and try one last thing. And so that's what I did. Um, Who did you call? So I called um, I called uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and um, uh, that was a life-changing moment because what they did was they put me in touch with a girl who I rang and I reached out to and we drove to visit. And um, for the first time in my life, which is insane because I'd been in active alcoholism for a long time by then. The first time in my life I met someone who looked and walked and talked and sounded like me, who shared my story. And I was able to sit face to face with someone who smiled at me and they were a beautiful, vibrant, healthy human. And she said, yeah, hi, Shan, my name's Ellie and I'm a recovered alcoholic and this is my husband, Dan, and out walks this strapping, gorgeous, big country bloke, you know, handsome. They're both just this gorgeous young couple. And um, that was the beginning of the barriers being broken into a thousand pieces in front of me. I looked at Tim and he looked at me and we looked at them and we're like, you guys are alcoholics? <laughs> and that was the beginning of the rest of the story. Mm. We're sitting with, connecting with, identifying with someone and for the first time I knew I wasn't alone. How hard was it to stop drinking? When I met with those gorgeous people and when I attended their support meeting after that, Ali, God love her, ran that meeting really, really cleverly and um, she got to me and um, I knew in that moment, I just knew in that moment, it's now or never, this is your chance. And so I stood up and it's just like a cheesy scene out of a movie and I stood up and I just, and, and Tim was sitting and we were holding hands across the gap and I just stood up that day and I, and I, as I say, I looked the devil in the eye and I just said, you know what, my name's Shanna. And I'm a raging bloody alcoholic and I burst out laughing. I started laughing <laughs> and I said, I'm such an, a dickhead because 
I'm totally an alcoholic. I just started laughing uncontrollably. Like you finally understood. Yeah. And then I started crying and then I started laughing and it was like <laughs> this moment of euphoric release of, oh, my God, just speak it. Just speak the damn truth here about yourself, woman. And I did. And I went home that night and I felt a sense of peace. And I said some pretty serious prayers. <laughs> so did Tim. And um, I woke up the next day and the very, 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 very long story short, that's five years ago now, is that was the last time I thought about grog mm. and I can't explain it other than a miracle. I gave it up in my mind. I gave it up in my soul and giving it up physically followed. Um, and, and many people who may or may not know this about recovery, the first step is admitting it. And I admitted it and I stopped being afraid of it. And I sort of view alcoholism as the ultimate bully. It wants you to be scared of it. And I think to this day the scariest thing is the denial that we'll see people pursue alcohol until they are dead. So, look, you got sober. You recognised that there were very few services for people that were looking to get sober in the country. So you started one and you now run an organisation called Sober in the Country, which is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger by the month. And congratulations <laughs> on how that's gone, because honestly, you've created something that there was a need for. Where do you think it's going to go from here? Um, the big goal is to change the culture of Outback Australia and how we talk about and do grog. I'll, I'll go back a step and tell you that when I very first became sober, people all said to me, Shan, the best way to get and stay sober is to give back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm down with that. That makes sense. So I actually tried to run a recovery meeting in my hometown. I spent two years opening a door, baking goods, sitting there like a little Nigel, no friends. Nobody came. So sober in the country is basically the result of my experience as someone in the country who couldn't get help, couldn't get support that made sense to me. And 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 as I as I went through the annals of my own personal recovery, I was like, this is insane. We can't be anonymous in a country town. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my bloody life. Why has no one ever challenged this? What it began as me sharing candidly and breaking my own anonymity and what it's ended and up as. And not being as, ashamed, right? And not being ashamed. So Sober in the Country is now a national charity and in 2020 what it looks like is we are broad-scale alcohol advocacy and awareness what we do is we drive really authentic yarns around the truth about grog from a lived experience. It's just speaking truth. That is all it is. But underneath that is a private group which today, and this is going to make me cry all over again, <laughs> today we have 600 rural professionals working together in a closed group that runs underneath all of that. It's 600 Shannas mm. who never, ever had anywhere to go and talk and be part of a tribe. And, and now they've got a massive community. And they've got a massive, it just, just got goosebumps all over my body. And I need to point out here, some people think it's a big, scary, evangelical platform upon which we flog people over the head if they drink. No, not at all. We don't actually give a stuff if people drink. That's not our job, you know. And if people can safely drink, good on them. My husband's one of those people. He has a beer in front of me, right? So what we're doing, it's not about demonising grog. It's about saying, guess what? Guess what, guys? There are shitloads of people in rural Australia who cannot safely enjoy a drink. What happens to them? Question mark, question mark. And I'll tell you what happens to them. They get isolated socially for their choice to be sober to this day. 
a country bloke who goes to a bar after a day in the sheep yards and orders a soda water is met with the response of, well, what are you doing, mate? You can't trust a bloke who says no to a beer. Mm. That is the mentality that is still in place. Now, the other bloke saying that is just repeating something he's been taught since he was a kid. But what they may not know is the man who said no thanks and ordered a soda water could have just lost his wife and family because he's an alcoholic. Mm. I Plonk me anywhere in rural or bloody city Australia for that matter. Give me five minutes with someone and they will reveal, yep, my mum, my sister, me, my dad, my uncle. Alcohol abuse is an epidemic in this country. And my job title that I get up and say in front of the mirror every day is you're going to be the person to change that in the bush. Well, Shanna, it's been such a pleasure to sit and speak the truth with you (laughs) for you to share your story. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Shanna Wan appeared at All About Women, the Opera House's annual Feminist Talks and Ideas Festival. And if you or someone you care about is struggling with addiction, you're not alone. There's a list of services you can access, including details for Sober in the Country, in the show notes. And if you need to call Lifeline, the number is 131114. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.